The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my pleasure to welcome my guest, Dr. Jennifer J. She earned her BS, MS, and PhD in civil and environmental engineering at the prestigious Massachusetts Institute of Technology. For the last 16 years, however, she has been a professor in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at the University of California in Los Angeles with an appointment in the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. She specializes in the fate and transport of chemical and microbial contaminants in the environment. Her research addresses a wide range of topics, including coastal water quality, heavy metals in the environment, environmental proliferation of antibiotic resistance, and the impacts of environmental education on the carbon footprint of dietary choices. We will be talking largely about the latter today after hearing her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting in Washington, D.C. this past October. But Dr. J has received many awards and honors, recognizing her excellence in teaching, service learning, and political engagement, as well as her achievements in promoting global sustainability. And I think if there's one way to look at our diets as we face a brand new year, it is looking at our plates through the lens of global sustainability. So welcome, Dr. J. It's an honor to have you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, your presentation at the Academy meeting was fantastic, and your website is wonderful. We'll provide a link for our listeners that go along with this interview. But I guess the first question to start out with is, how did you become interested in environmental engineering? Oh, actually, I kind of grew up interested in it. I always loved math and science and nature, and this was just a way to bring it all together. And so you ended up going from the East Coast to the West Coast, and your job now focuses on carbon sequestration and understanding how carbon is related to our plates and the food we eat and all the systems factors that go into our food, such as processing and transportation and waste, and the impact on the planet. How did you take your environmental sensibilities and apply them? Like, What made you think about the food system? Well, let's see. I was mostly studying water quality and very uh, specific pollution problems, contamination of groundwater with a specific pollutant. And I was addressing pretty focused research questions, and I wanted my work to address a range of environmental issues and kind of broader global sustainability issues. And I've read a lot. I had a sabbatical, and I took some time and really thought, how do I want to make an impact going forward? And so I shifted my lab research almost exclusively to antibiotic resistance in the environment. And we still look at other contaminants in the environment, but mostly through the lens of how they impact antibiotic resistance in the environment. And that does tie into food systems since 
78% of antibiotics now are, are actually used in the food system, so our, our laboratory work has to do with food. And I started teaching a class on food as a lens for environment and sustainability. And it's an environmental science class, but taught through the lens of food and for a variety of reasons. Food is really fun to think about. It's really fascinating to everyone. We all enjoy food. But more than that, it's our food choices are really important um, in environmental sustainability. So I began teaching about that, and that then turned into an arm of research because we did a study to look at how students actually did change their diet after taking our class. The class is pretty large. It's up to 200 students each year. Uh, we had a control class that, that wasn't learning our material, and we compared their reported diets at the start and at the end, and they reported much healthier diets at the end. There were more fruits and vegetables, and the carbon footprint of their diet was lower, statistically significantly lower at the end and compared to the control group. Hmm, that's wonderful. You're having a tremendous impact. I wonder how many people understand the connection. It's not obvious to us if we don't learn about it, right? I have a little comic on my refrigerator. It says, nothing is obvious to the uninformed. And I think that this is one area where that really has such an important lens where mm -hmm. we aren't taught about food usually through that planetary protection lens. Oh, people are eager for the information. I just see so much interest whenever, wherever I go, whoever I'm talking to, people want to know, but they don't really have information available. They, and they might know qualitative things like, oh, beef has a high environmental footprint or beef has a high water footprint or certain qualitative statements. But the truth is that in the scientific literature, there are so many numbers available. This, people have been studying this in really quantitative ways for a long time called life cycle assessment. It's a whole area of science that looks at the resources that go into all of these things. And so there's so much information that I see in my field, in the literature and textbooks, that's very clear. And then I, out in the rest of the world, outside of academia or outside of my discipline, I see people not having access to those numbers, but a great interest. So mm -hmm. that's what, why I started the blog, and I started tying carbon footprint numbers into recipes that people like to make. And everyone loves the idea, and it was amazing that really nobody had done it because it's not very hard. <laughs> There's no rocket science going on. I'm just taking readily available numbers from the literature, from the peer-reviewed literature, the best numbers. I'm just doing simple arithmetic with recipes just to bring it home in very accessible terms for everyone, mm -hmm. the difference between a beef chili and a bean chili or oatmeal versus bacon and eggs, pancakes made one way versus pancakes made another way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So that website, because I'm sure once you say recipes, everybody gets interested, is Meals4, and that's the number four, mealsforplanet.org. The thing is, you have done the math for us, and you show us in no uncertain terms just what kind of impact our food and beverage intake makes. And I want to bring forth something that you made very clear to us at the Dietetic Association meeting, and that is 
how much hidden water is in food. So for example, you show a soda can and you ask a simple question, how much water goes into making one liter of soda? And I was shocked when you said between 340 to 620 liters of water mm-hmm. are used for making one liter of soda. Tell me how that number came to be. Right. So I was shocked when I first saw that number in the newspaper. And so I went and bought the book that the newspaper article had cited read much of that book, especially that portion. And yes, a whole bunch of studies have produced a range of estimates. And it is surprising. Most people guess around 10 liters. It's really funny. Whenever I ask that question to an audience, the first guess is always 10 liters to one liter. So, And it's surprising until you consider all of the sugar that's in our soda. We all know there's too much sugar in our soda that we may like to drink. We want to avoid you know, having too much because of the sugar, but we don't think about the environmental resources of that sugar. So right. whenever we need to grow a crop, there's water, there's land, there's fertilizer, maybe right. chemical pollution. So all of these resources go into each product. Yeah. And then there's mm-hmm. the transportation of that soda. So it has to, yes. it's probably on a mm-hmm. truck, it's using fossil fuel mm-hmm. to go from production site to the store. Mm -hmm. So there are all of those layers and they apply to everything that we eat. Absolutely. And drink. And as you say, I have another really interesting statistic, which is just a water bottle. So if you're just talking about the carbon footprint of a one liter bottle of water, the carbon footprint of bringing that to you from various locations around the world is actually the same as the carbon footprint of burning a quarter of a liter of gasoline. Wow. And that's another one that just blew my mind because we see water bottles everywhere in large quantity. At large events, there might just be hundreds of water bottles. And if you think if each one was filled to the quarter mark with gasoline and then all that burned. So that was surprising me too. So I looked into that one in detail. And that was a fascinating study, just showing a big range of carbon footprint of, uh, yes, right around 250 mils. I'm going to ask you a really basic question because I think it's another topic that probably needs to be better understood to put all these pieces together. But why are carbon footprints important? And why are we talking so much about carbon when it comes to climate change and global sustainability? Right. Oh, excellent question. And I'm so glad you asked because um, the science on this is really well known. It's really well figured out how these gases behave in our atmosphere. So we definitely understand that certain gases will trap heat in the atmosphere. And a good way to think about it would be these gases act as a blanket on the earth, keeping it to a comfortable temperature. So we actually need these gases in the atmosphere doing that job of trapping some of the heat that is emitted from the earth, some trapping some of that so that we have a good temperature. Otherwise, our planet would be too cold. So we definitely need this effect going on. It's called the greenhouse effect because it behaves like a greenhouse trapping heat. Mm-hmm. Um, and carbon dioxide is an important greenhouse gas. Also, water vapor, nitrous oxide, and methane are all major players. And so what's happened over the last over 100 years since the Industrial Revolution it's just a dramatic increase. And if you look at the graphs 
the steepness of the curve of, of the concentration of these gases in the atmosphere, it is significant. It's a very dramatic increase that has occurred recently, relatively recently, the last 100 years or so. Before that, the amount of greenhouse gases was pretty stable and the climate was pretty stable for like the last 10,000 years. And over those 10,000 years, societies flourish, humanity flourishes, and then we're really changing it quite quickly. And even 20 years ago, we knew this was coming and it would be significant. And I just remember being in college and learning about climate change as something we could already see happening. We already had the temperatures rising, but we weren't seeing what we are today. It was more thought of as a problem that we'll face in the future as temperatures continue to rise. But right now, we actually have information just staring us in the face all the time. When we turn on the news, we're just seeing the more frequent and more intense storms. And right. that the year that we had, it was just last year, the last calendar year, all of the hurricanes, one after the other, and it was so horrifying to see. And I just remember thinking, if there's any silver lining in this, which of course there isn't when there's human tragedy involved, but if there's anything that comes out of this, I thought, no one can doubt this anymore. Right. And it's just shocking to me that we are still having climate deniers in powerful positions, completely denying really basic science, science that we would teach to elementary and K through 12 students, is right. getting denied even in the face of so much evidence, such right. very clear evidence. And it's not just the storms. This timing of all kinds of temperature-related events are shifting. And animals that migrate are then having their cycles disrupted because mm -hmm. their signals to migrate are all from the climate. And so, and where to go, where they're supposed to go is dictated by the climate. So, yeah, so we're seeing a lot of disruption these days and hopefully it will catch on and it for sure has. I mean, there's so much activity toward this now. That's a good thing. We just need more action. Absolutely. I need to take one break and just remind everyone that you are tuned in to Food Sleuth Radio, and my guest is Dr. Jennifer J. She is an environmental engineer. She is at UCLA, and we are talking about her work in global sustainability, specifically climate change, and how food and how we produce our food, package, and transport it is truly at the heart of global sustainability. You presented beautiful slides about how food plays a major role in environmental sustainability. You touched on one, which has to do with our carbon footprints. You also mentioned chemical pollution, biodiversity loss, the impact of nitrogen pollution from fertilizers, and antibiotic resistance. And since we spoke about the storms. I do want to touch on antibiotic resistance. You're doing very interesting research, swabbing the noses of surfers. But there are other studies that are going on right now, also swabbing people's noses for the presence of antibiotic resistant bacteria. My fear is that when we have these big storms and all the flooding that goes along with it, we have an increase in the spread of antibiotic resistance that comes from livestock production. Tell me about your research in this area. Well, my research in this area, my group's research, really started with the air in California. We noticed that at certain locations along the highway, the air is more odorous. 
And so we decided to investigate that first with just simple Petri dishes. We actually held them out the window to get our preliminary results. We just wanted to see because just because something smells doesn't mean there's anything really in that air that's alive. It could just be an odorous chemical. But anyway, we were able to collect a lot of live airborne bacteria from the air, and we compared what we collected from different types of cattle rearing sites. So we compared feedlots versus organic and pasture farms. And we did see higher levels of antibiotic resistance in the air near the feedlots. And that's something that others have shown as well for other locations. So mm-hmm. kind of did this for California at these particular sites. So that's what started it. And then we became interested in the fertilizers because the manure from these animals can have enhanced levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria because often livestock are fed low doses of antibiotics. So that's actually a kind of the wrong thing to do if you're trying to fight buildup of resistance because when you give low levels, you basically kill off just the weakest bacteria and you would leave the stronger bacteria in that situation. So in, in the guts of the farm animals, you can have resistance levels increasing. Mm -hmm. And that comes out in the manure and then it can travel even in the air if if the wind is kicking up bits of dried manure, it can travel that way. Or as you pointed out, when we have flooding situations, we do have animal fecal matter that is coming out of its containment lagoons and can be part of the flooding that occurs. Mm -hmm. So we all saw those images. And I think that is of concern. The the microbial quality of that water would would believe be impacted by the local sources of pollution. Mm-hmm. Why are you studying surfers? Well, it started just because I have a student who is a surfer, and she saw the methods that we were developing for people. We were interested in studying farm workers, and she was studying the ocean anyway as part of her work and wanted to look at one of the antibiotic-resistant pathogens. So we were looking at MRSA. Mm -hmm. She actually found it in the surfing beaches. And so one of her research questions is whether the MRSA, that's methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, whether those levels that she's seeing in the ocean then result in a colonization in the surfers. But our other research question is where does that come from? We know we saw it in all of these beaches. We don't know, is it coming from hospital effluent, from sewage effluent, or is it coming from the fertilizers and the runoff that happens all over wherever there's landscaping, you have fertilizers. So that's one of the avenues whereby these antibiotic-resistant pathogens could make it into the ocean, could be from the fertilizers. So are, are you able to trace the antibiotics that are... Well, we'll see. There are ways to get hints at where it comes from. And so you can actually amplify a certain gene from the MRSA. You can amplify a certain gene and then sequence that gene, Mm -hmm. and you can determine if it's likely to be livestock associated. Mm. Um, So there, there are different types, and they do have different sequences. So We'll see how clear our results are. We haven't done these tests yet, but we are planning to. So I'm hoping we'll be able to get a picture. And we can compare the types of MRSA that we see in the ocean. We can compare it with the ones we see from our fertilizers. And we can collect the stormwater. We can look at sewage effluent. So we can 
measure the potential sources and then also the ocean and check out at a pretty detailed level what type of MRSA and see if we get a match. But as I said, I don't know how conclusive the results will be. Well, it will be interesting to look at your research and compare it to other sites around the country that are also tracking people who are in close proximity to concentrated livestock operations. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting that the patterns that are recommended to protect the planet and to protect our environment are the same dietary patterns that we recommend to prevent heart disease and mm-hmm. obesity and cancer. Mm-hmm. And I think what we see from your research and your website is that absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, everything is connected. And food really does connect us all when we talk about food, health, environment, and planet. Mm-hmm. So thank you Absolutely. for this great way of bringing it all together. You know, the other thing that you brought up during your talk at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting was the loss of biodiversity is really quite staggering. Tell me why it's so important that we pay attention to biodiversity. Why is it important for the planet's health and our own health? Right. So excellent question. We do have a self-interest even in preserving biodiversity because there are so many medicines, um, useful compounds that we obtain from nature. Even just drugs alone, they're interesting, very powerful, potent things that come from nature. And so basically we are losing things that we haven't even cataloged yet, that we're not even on our radar. They're lost already. So yeah, very important to keep that, to minimize that. Such lost potential is the way I see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the other items that you mentioned was it's so sad that our country does not seem to be embracing the Paris Climate Accord. But on the bright side, Many cities are taking Mm -hmm. it on themselves and saying, hey, you know, we're going to sign on to this. We are going to pay attention to the environment and the climate. And then you also have ways for people to meet the Paris Climate Accord. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So I completely agree that a lot of states, cities, businesses are taking on climate change by pledging to meet the Paris Climate Accord targets, which is fantastic. But yes, one way to look at these our, our own personal carbon footprint numbers is to tie it into the amount of carbon reduction that's needed for Paris. And because otherwise, I can report carbon footprint data on the website, but people don't really have a framework for understanding what those numbers really mean. And so, so what a fun calculation is if you take the amount of carbon reduction needed for the whole country. That's 447 million metric tons per year, which sounds like a crazy big number because it is. But if you divide that by the population and by the number of days in a year, you actually get a number that's in the same ballpark as these dietary shift numbers. Like you you get 3,660 grams of carbon dioxide equivalents per day, per person. And that's around the same as the difference between a carbon-intensive sandwich and a not-carbon-intensive sandwich. So it can come down to simple dietary shifts, and we will need to make these types of dietary changes. There are many studies that show we, that 
the global diet does need to shift away from these really carbon-intensive industries, just have less of them, less of the carbon-intensive ones. But And it is interesting to see the numbers play out, that even just one day's serving, that could be your Paris contribution. Right, exactly. Well, you've got a great blog on your website. And again, that, that website is mealsforplanet.org. And I believe you wrote this in November of 2017, was taking climate into our own hands. And you talk about all the different ways that we can reduce our carbon footprint. And you make it so that it's applicable and easy to do. We just have a few minutes left. So I want to leave this time open for you to share anything that you would like about your research that you want our listeners to know. Well, I'd love to just re-emphasize. I know we mentioned the impact of the importance of education. So I just wanted to emphasize that even just knowing the numbers and seeing the numbers just seems to result in just voluntary dietary shifts. So if, as much as people can promote you know, education in their schools and their communities about the environment, then that can make a big difference. And then the other thing I just want to bring home, you mentioned it, just the idea of co-benefits. It's hard to make food choices. You know, there are so many factors that play into it, including our comfort and our stress and all these things go into just us deciding what we eat on a given day. And so it's really nice if there's co-benefits kind of nudging us in the same direction. Like on some days, you might be really motivated by health, but other days, maybe less so, but then there's the environmental benefits. It just goes into your mind. And so it's just really nice that these positive reasons for making better choices. Also, animal ethics. We all care about animals and how they're treated, and so that can be another powerful motivator. All moving in the same direction, and so many benefits to be had when we can get ourselves to shift a a little bit. Right. And I can't recommend your website enough, not only because you've got delicious recipes to help us make that shift, but because you also talk about the important ways that our plates and the food on our plates really do impact the larger global sustainability. I want to bring up another thing that you mentioned on your website, and that is the carbon footprint of our food with regard to waste that we mm-hmm. waste 30, mm-hmm. 30 to 40% of our food. Yeah. And yeah. the messages that I hear so often is that, oh my gosh, we've got to produce more food to feed all these more millions of mouths. But really, if we could also think about wasting less on an everyday basis, that also turns into certainly being more resourceful, but also protecting our planet. Oh, absolutely. And there's things people can do such as There's a company called Imperfect Produce that specializes in getting those less aesthetically pleasing produce, pieces of produce to us. You can really help avoid the waste that occurs at that level. There's waste that occurs at every level from things left on the field because they don't look quite right or they're just the wrong size. I even heard of a whole bunch of bananas being discarded because they didn't have the right angle of bend to them. People won't buy things unless they look exactly right. And so there are businesses that are focusing on that, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, And also small things you can do, like when you go to a restaurant that you know has a big portion, if you bring a takeout container, this is a little trick that I've developed that people like when they see, I'll just bring a Tupperware with me in my purse. And then it encourages me to not eat the whole portion, actually, because I just pack it up immediately and then it's not there on my plate. And so I also save on the packaging, I save myself extra calories, maybe, that I didn't need, and I save the food 
because I can have it a different day instead of a different lunch. So that's another trick. Thank you so much. That is a wonderful tip. We will refer people again to Meals for the Planet for more information. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jennifer Jay. She is an environmental engineer at UCLA working on reducing the carbon footprint of dietary choices. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.